Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of For the Love of Duluth podcast. My name is Tom Jamison. I am a former lawyer who moved to Duluth about seven years ago after I bought a business here called Lake Superior Medical Equipment, hanging up my lawyer hat after 25 years. Joining me as co-host of this podcast is a lifelong Duluthian, a registered nurse, and the marketing director for Lake Superior Medical Equipment, Yvonne Myers. So why did we start a podcast called For the Love of Duluth? Because we love this town and the interesting people, places, and experiences that we continue to discover here. If you already live in Duluth, we hope this podcast will teach you things you never knew before about the place we call home. If you are planning to visit Duluth, we hope this podcast can act as a tour guide of sorts, giving you an inside look at the remarkable people, places, and things that make up our unique city. Duluth is a star of the show, and our guests help it shine even brighter. We hope you love this podcast as much as we love the city it's named for. This is Season 4 of For the Love of Duluth. Let's be honest, most people come to see the Zenith City for a glimpse of the glorious lake that acts as its backdrop. Lake Superior is is Duluth as much as Duluth is Lake Superior. Beauty of the Great Lake aside, the large body of water also has a long and storied history, much of which lies beneath the surface, intriguing everyone from locals to tourists to historians. Many have done deep dives, literally and figuratively, into the depths of Lake Superior to see this history with their very own eyes. lake, which feels more like an ocean, is littered with shipwrecks, some so famous they are the things of folklore and even songs. After all, the bottom of the body of water hides some of the deepest wrecks in all the Great Lakes. This epic history is part of the power of Lake Superior, one so strong that some dedicate their lives to it. Wreck hunters and photographers see the world from a perspective most of us never will, pun intended. Without this dedication to their craft, most of us would never view a shipwreck or learn about their important place in history as some of these wrecks lie hundreds of feet below the surface. Someone who has been crucial to bringing such images back to the surface is Jerry Eliason, a Cloquet resident today. He has been hunting and exploring the grand shipwrecks of Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes for more than two decades, often with a few other members of his wreck hunter team. He's been part of numerous shipwreck dives, cementing these finds into the history books with his deep water camera techniques. We are all reaping the fantastic benefits of his work. His journey into wreck hunting is just as epic as the history behind the shipwrecks he searches for. And it all started after he caught an episode of Sea Hunt, a TV show from the 1950s. This program sparked an intense passion in Jerry, which led him to start diving in small lakes around Rice Lake, Wisconsin in 1966. In 1967, he kicked things up a notch and started scuba diving, making his first dive into Lake Superior just one year later. Want proof he really dove into the whole scuba diving sport? He did the dive without a hood, boots, or gloves. From his first dive all those years ago to present day, Jerry has accomplished a boatload of accomplishments in the industry, taking part in 13 successful shipwreck hunts, taking and cataloging nearly 7,000 shipwreck photos, and collaborating with his son in 1999 on the design and production of their very own side-scan sonar system. He 
also took part in over 700 shipwreck dives between 1976 and 1989, averaging a whopping 50 each year. Today, his passion continues, shifting his focus to finding previously undiscovered shipwrecks. We are so lucky Jerry is here today to chat about his historical shipwreck dives and his journey scuba diving over the past few decades. Jerry, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I hate to admit my age, but it's actually over five decades I've been doing this. And uh, I think the, 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 the number that was given, the 13, well, that was before I retired. So since retiring back in 2016, I've had more time to spend on the lake. So it's up to 22 uh, fines. Uh, no, no, really? You've found nine more since whenever you were at 13. Right. Okay. So you retired. You didn't retire from shipwreck hunting. No, no, I just retired. Uh, I worked for the state of Minnesota Department of Public Safety. And uh, I don't want it to ever sound like I have found these by myself. I've been a participant. It takes a team of people. Uh, one of those is Ken Merriman. I've been, right. uh, he's been along on about half of the shipwrecks I've found. And then Craig Smith has been along on about half the ship, about half of those. And then my son's been along on a couple of them. And his name is? My son's name is Jared. Jared. Okay. So um, we're going to get into all of that, Jerry, but we're always interested in the journey, how people got to, to where they are now. And you were born in North Dakota. Uh, and then moved to Wisconsin at some point. About how old were you then? Well, I was 11 when we moved from North Dakota to Wisconsin. I grew up a farm in the Red River Valley. I think the closest lake was about 60 miles away from where I lived. There were a couple gravel pits, but right. anyway, that was my home territory. I grew up on a family farm, and then... Uh, my dad farmed all his life and uh, decided to sell his land out there. And uh, he was quite a bit older than my mother, so he kind of went into semi-retirement. And he loved fishing, so that was his thing, musky fishing. Oh, sure, sure. So he went to western Wisconsin, and now you're you got a lot of lakes around you. And uh, at some point you decided you, you, you liked the lakes and liked to, to get in them. Yeah, the, the, the bug to get into scuba diving was kind of a combination of seeing that Sea Hunt episode, seeing Lloyd Bridges and him and his exploits, and then my dad's uh, fishing. So he would take me fishing. Uh, there were Maybe a couple times he didn't want to admit that he was mine. I remember uh, we were fishing crappies, and I was using a lure that, and asked him for a different one, so he tossed me a different lure. And then a little while later, he said, what did you do with that lure that you were using? And I said, well, I put it in my pocket. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm about five years old, so then my dad probably is wondering if I'm really his at that time yeah, or not. Yeah. Well, were you able to get it out of the pocket at some point? Uh, he or? had to kind of cut it out there. <laughs> So my pocket was ruined, of course. Yeah. So, so that was that sort of uh, how your fishing career started and ended then? Well, the the fishing wasn't something that I loved, but what was odd about it is my dad would fish for three or four days till he caught a muskie. You know, right. fishing for walleyes or panfish was easy, but when he went for the muskies, right. and I couldn't believe he would spend that much time with nothing happening. And then here I get into an activity where you're lucky if you find one every 20 days of searching. Yeah, holy cow. So you got into the whole scuba diving thing by watching Sea, sea Hunt. And I, I'm old enough to remember Sea Hunt. I don't know that I ever watched it live, but I remember watching reruns of Sea Hunt and Lloyd Bridges. And it was a pretty cool show, right? Um, I don't know where they filmed it, probably in a studio pool somewhere, but it looked like they were really, uh, you know, underwater and in, in open oceans when they were filming a lot of that yeah, stuff. Most 
of Sea Hunt was shot in Silver Springs, Florida, so it was a natural site. But that was one of the things when I first started diving, the visibility in the best of lakes is a tiny fraction of what it is in Silver Springs, Florida. Right, and uh, and we're going to get to that in just a second because you were um, you you got you did your first scuba dive. Was that did I have that right? That uh, that was back in uh, 1967. Yes, you, you scuba 19- dive and that was in Rice Lake, Wisconsin. Yeah, well, I was actually grew up in, and went to school in Cameron, but we say Rice Lake because. People, a lot more people, people know, know where Rice Lake is versus versus Cameron. But yeah, after begging for a long time, and uh, I remember the first tank I got, uh, my dad owed me a little bit of money for lawn mowing, and he had worked the night shift, so I went in and got him to sign a check for $15. There was a place down in Florida that if you'd send them $15, they would ship you the tank, and then you'd pay the second half plus the shipping. Uh, I got him to sign that check. I don't think he knew fully what he was getting do. himself into yeah. so so you you went in this lake and what, how big a lake was it the first one that you dove into cameron had a swimming pool that was basically a dammed up section of a creek so it wasn't a pool like a cement pool but i did a lot of diving in there and there there were uh snapping turtles in there and there were there were fish so so you could see stuff mm-hmm. yeah and, visibility was about uh oh eight feet or so <laughs> versus what 50 or more in the in florida where well, 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 silver feel, springs yeah. of florida they have about 300 foot visibility oh wow Holy cow. Uh, Lake Superior on a good day at a good location will have about 100 foot visibility. Wow. And then most lakes, uh, other than Lake Superior, you have that 10 foot. Yeah, because Lake Superior is supposed to be a good lake to dive in, isn't it? Yeah. Compared to other lakes? Yeah, Lake Superior was quite popular and diving in general was way more popular back in say the early 80s than it is now you'd encounter a lot more divers back in those days interesting why do you think that is well speculate you know we all see kids these days with their nose down and their thumbs on their communication devices and uh, to them I don't know they just haven't so you think there's less divers period not just that there's the divers have decided they they don't want to be in Lake Superior you think there's fewer people diving now? I believe that there's a lot fewer diving cold water. Oh, okay. You know, there might be people who take dive classes and then head down to Cozumel, you know, for a winter vacation and do some uh, d- diving right. down right. in that warm water. But uh, the cold water diving seems to have gone way downhill. And then we used to get in Lake Superior a lot of people coming from Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit, up to Lake Superior because it was by far the cleanest or clearest of the Great Lakes. But that was before the zebra mussel invasion. And and uh, since they invaded, they filter the water. So right. Lake Michigan, Lake Huron have gotten so that the transparency of the water is a lot bigger yeah, down there now than Lake Superior. They'll have 150, 200 foot visibility sometimes down in the lower lakes. Yeah. And and of course, there's that's, I guess, the one benefit of zebra mussels. There's obviously a lot of other issues because they're eating the stuff they eat that clears the water out as food for other uh, other types of organisms that then have a hard time making it. Well, yeah, and they obscure the finer details on, on ships. Like uh, there's one that we found uh, a few years ago in Lake Huron called the Jane Miller, and the wheel on that ship is so clustered with wow. zebra mussels, it takes a very keen eye to recognize that that 
it's a wheel. Interesting. And, and we're blessed in Lake Superior to not have the zebra mussels in the open lake. And uh, I think that it's probably due to temperature and the chemistry of the water yeah. because, you know, they're in the harbors and bays of the lake where the water warms up. They will have, you know, there, there are zebra mussels right. available to just head out into the lake, yeah. but they don't uh, infest the open waters yeah, of the well, lake. Let's, and let's hope that uh, that's, that stays true. So you, uh, you're you growing up now in western Wisconsin, uh, and then you went to school. Did you go to college in, at University of uh, Wisconsin-Eau Claire? Do I have that right? Yeah, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire for a couple years. Then uh, my high school sweetheart and I uh, got married, and uh, my mother told me if I was old enough to get married, I was old enough to take care of myself, and I sure. took that to heart. Sure. So I didn't end up graduating until 1978. It was kind of a on and off going to school. Oh, I know that journey well. I took it myself at the University of Minnesota. So I, I'm well, I, I know that one. So, um, so in 1978, you graduated. And then, so then what did you do after that? I always wanted to get up to the Duluth area, being closer to the lake, because I was coming up this way, diving in those years, 76, 77. So you were already starting to really get into cold water diving in Lake Superior. And had you started looking for shipwrecks yet? Uh, early on, it was more diving the wrecks that had already been located right. and were easy to get to, you know, shore wrecks like the Madeira or the Samuel P. Ely. And where's the Madeira again? Uh, the Madeira is the first uh, at the base of the cliff, the next cliff beyond Split Rock Lighthouse. That's what I thought, and that's that's where it washed ashore, and that was in that great storm, wasn't it, in, in November? Wasn't that the storm that caused so many ships to get lost? Yeah, the big 1905 yeah. storm, that's yeah. considered the worst one on Lake Superior. Yeah, and I know we, uh, we, we had the gentleman from Split Rock Lighthouse, and we were talking about that. I think it was the Madeira that they've person made that great jump from the, I don't know if it was a mast or something, onto the cliff that... Yeah, climbed up the yeah, mast yeah. and then jumped over to the cliff it's and just, dropped down a line to his shipmates to get him up the cliff. Just an amazing story, because you can imagine what the weather was like while he was doing that. It's just insane. So you were diving those shipwrecks, and so um, so then you graduated uh, from college, and you decided, well, now you can actually go up and, and maybe live up here? Is that what you decided to do? Yeah. Well, after graduating, he started hunting for a job. Sure. was offered one job down in Madison, Wisconsin, and I declined that one because I wanted a little bit more money than that and thought for sure there was a second job I was going to get, and that one I did not get offered. And then in the meantime, uh, there was a job opening at Western Lake Superior Sanitary District in the lab there. And I remember walking in up at UMD to take the test for the job. And there were 60 people there to take the test. And people were saying there were two PhDs, five master's degrees, and then everybody else had bachelor's. Well, luckily I had a good professor, had good training. It was like I was trained to take that test. So oh. anyway, I ended up getting, getting oh, wow. the job up here. Wow, okay. Okay, so you got that job and you moved up here then? Yes. With your wife? Yes. And uh, and so uh, when did you start um, When did you start really doing a lot of diving in Lake Superior? Soon was after you moved here. Well, I was generally finding a way <laughs> to get up here. To, to, to get up here. Yeah, use, use my vacation uh, time to, to, to get up 
here. And I had a high school friend down in uh, the Rice Lake area was able to start expanding to get to some of the more, the better wrecks. Like uh, Isle Royal is a wonderful place to dive. And what was great about Isle Royal is the wrecks weren't real difficult to find because they had run aground on reefs. Okay. So you could find the reef and then find the wreck on the reef. You know, it wasn't that. So they weren't in, in, in deep, deep water. Well, like the, the Chester A. Congdon up on the north end of Isle Royal. Uh, that goes down to 220 feet or so. Oh, wow. And, and, and you've gone down there? How, is that kind of getting close to your limits? Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, back those days, all divers had was air. So combination of the narcotic effect of air at depth. Right. It's kind of like being in the dentist's office. And uh, nowadays, if I have to any work needing to be done where I can get nitrous oxide, I'm, I'm happy to take it because it's right. a lot like the deep diving. Really? That makes it very dangerous, though, because you're not in a dentist chair. You're 200 and some feet below the surface of the water. All right. Yeah. If you saw me walk out of here, uh, I had my incident uh, much later on in uh, 1989. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that in, in, in a moment because I do want to talk to you a little bit about that. It's the biggest fear that divers have right is is getting the bends so so you're at this point you're diving you're you're you are diving wrecks that have already been discovered for the most part correct yeah the first independent piece of wreckage we found uh was in 1981 on the theano up in canadian waters uh there were there was reports of the theano running into trowbridge island and we talked to some divers from that area who had looked around trowbridge island and hadn't found it found anything any evidence of the wreck being there and then uh they'd also checked on this shagana island and in between shagana island and trowbridge island is an island called marvin island it's only like 500 feet long but uh couldn't get out to isle royal because of the weather so we just went out and dove along the base of marvin island and lo and behold found a ship's propeller there you know really uh, a 14 foot diameter ship's propeller oh wow and so uh, how long did it take at that point to find the rest of the wreck uh let's see it's about 15 years Wow. Okay. That's amazing. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And I I find this fascinating because I'm sure, you know, a ship loses its propeller. Propellers don't just fall off. Something caused that propeller to, to come out, come apart from the ship. And then something caused the ship to, to not be where the propeller is anymore. Did you, how far away from the propeller was the ship? Uh, The better part, of a mile. Wow. Okay. First of all, how big a ship are we talking about? If it's got a 14, a 14 foot propeller, it's got to be a fairly good sized ship. Yeah, it was 250 feet long. It was built in the Netherlands uh, and it fit through the old Welland Canal oh, okay. uh, up until the St. Lawrence Seaway was established. I think that was 1959. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. But prior to that, there was still connection for ships to get in and out from the uh, ocean into the Great Lakes. Of via the Welland Canal, and that the, the canal there at that time limited them to that 250 foot. Right, okay. All right, so so that's, if you were looking for, I guess at that point, salties, they would have been limited to that size, where salties now are kind of limited to about 700 and some mm-hmm. feet, because that's the yes. length of the of the locks and, and the St. Lawrence Seaway. So you've, you found this, did you, this, this, and what's the name of the ship now where you found the propeller? The Theano. Okay, and so I've got so many questions. So you found this propeller, and it took you 15 years to find the wreck. Now, at this point, 
how are you starting to look for shipwrecks? Because, you know, it's a big lake. Yeah, well, w- w- one of the reasons looking by the reef or wrecks that hit shore, uh, and I should back up just a moment, th- there's vertical cliffs up there on the Canadian shore. That people who have seen the Sleeping Giant, there's 1,200-foot-high cliffs that come almost straight down from wow. the bottom to the lake with very little slope. Well, we always thought that after finding that propeller that the rest of the ship was just down in water too deep for us to get to. I remember Craig Smith and I uh, tried to find the rest of the ship going down the slope, uh, and we had anchored our boat right up against the cliff, and uh, we went down as far as we dared. We went down to almost 200 feet, hoping that we would be able to, you know, that it would start to flatten out. Right. Well, it, it didn't start to flatten out, and to avoid a log decompression, uh, we just went straight up from where we were at because we were allowed a five-minute dive to right. that depth. And when we came up, uh, we almost hit our heads on the propeller of our boat that it was just drifting 50 feet off. You know, so anyway, all the, all those years we thought the ship was just down there. Yeah, and, uh, we were motivated over time to build cameras that let us get down all to the way. sea deeper than we could dive. All right. Well, listen, um, Jerry, we've got to take a short break here and hear from our sponsor, Lake Superior Medical Equipment, and uh, then we will be right back and uh, hear more about your uh, your fascinating uh, life. Lake Superior Medical Equipment is proud to announce some big news. They have opened two brand new locations. Nearly eight months after the fire destroyed their Duluth store and warehouse, the team at Lake Superior Medical Equipment has bounced back bigger and better than ever with a new storefront at... 4730 Mike Colaleo Drive in Duluth. The new store is located in the lower level of the Bullion Center with more parking and a great new layout. That's not all. Lake Superior Medical Equipment has also moved their store in Cloquet. Customers can now shop at their brand new location at 907 Stanley Avenue, just a few doors down from their old store. Something that hasn't changed? The amazing customer service you have come to expect from Lake Superior Medical Equipment. Our friendly staff is ready and waiting to help you find everything you need in our two brand new locations in Duluth and Cloquet. Stop in and see the friendly staff at Lake Superior Medical Equipment today. Have a question? Give them a call at 218-727-0600 or visit them online at lsmedequip.com. In the meantime, keep up with everything happening at Lake Superior Medical Equipment on social media. Just search for Lake Superior Medical Equipment on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. All right, we are back with Jerry Eliason, and he is a wreck hunter. And we were talking, uh, Jerry, about uh, one of the first wrecks that you came across, or at least part of this wreck that you came across, and this was in 1981. And before that, most of your uh, diving experience was visiting wrecks that people had already found. Uh, And this was one where you found the propeller sort of by chance on a dive, but not the rest of the ship. Yeah. Well, it wasn't exactly by chance in that uh, we had talked to some Canadian divers who told us, to their knowledge, the face of Marvin Island had not been explored, and they didn't think anybody else had. So that's when we went out there and just swam the island. And, and that was the thing. Before Loran and GPS, you were kind of limited as to how far offshore you could work, because once you get a ways offshore, you don't know exactly 
right. wh- where you're at. So that's why we did a lot of stuff relatively close to shore. When you're uh, going out here, did you have a boat at that time, your own boat, or did you just charter boats, or how did you do that? I had uh, an inflatable boat. Oh, okay. I used to give, uh, when it needed patching, which it did periodically, uh, I'd go up to my dad's yard and do it just so he would, uh, I'd like to give him a bad time because he'd shake his head when he'd see me out there <laughs> on his lawn pat- <laughs> patching my boat. And uh, he actually came along on one of the trips, not to dive, uh, but just to come out to Isle Royal and stay in the campground. And they came out on the ferry on the Winona. Right. And my wife and I were on the inflatable, but uh, we went back and we had about six foot waves. <laughs> so that, did that, you, did you, is that from Grand Portage? Yes. Okay. We, so we, you went from Grand Portage and Isle Royal in a inflatable, is it kind of like a Zodiac? Yes, boat? yes. Okay, okay. All right. So they Zodiacs can, I've been in maybe not six foot waves, but I've been in some way, uh, some decent waves, but not in, in frigid water. You know, this is down, you know, on whale watching tours or something where you're getting hit in waves, but you, you're not getting frozen to the bone. But you made it to, to Isle Royal in that uh, in that boat. Oh, yeah. we. Uh, I've been back and forth to Isle Royal and inflatable at least 40 times over the years. So you... Yeah. You're towing this boat, and then you're to close to where your destination is, and then using this boat to get out to the wherever it is you we, want to dive. We didn't have to tow it; it just went in the bag. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, you oh, roll it out and put the floor in. Oh, it. it's 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 really it's yeah. That's really that's really just an inflatable boat. And then pump yeah. pump it up. So so let's let's get back to this. So 1981, you find this propeller and now, you know, somewhere there's the rest of the ship, but um, you don't have the, you don't have the gear. You don't have the technology to really look for that. It's, it's too deep to dive for. Um, so we're in 1981. Tell us how you went from there, finding this propeller to starting to take wreck hunting more seriously and decide you're going to start looking for wrecks yourself. Yeah. Well, that transition went as fish finders became available so you could uh you know for a few hundred dollars you could buy an instrument that would tell you how deep the water was underneath you so if you drove over something where there was a quick rise and then go back down again uh you you could surmise that that's probably a shipwreck especially if you were looking for wrecks in relatively flat bottom so the first uh, major uh, wreck that we found, uh, the Inoko, uh, seven miles off Knife River, uh, that happened in 1988. We started in 1987 uh, looking looking for it. Uh, Craig Smith, primarily him and I, and then my son went up with us uh, sometimes, and my son happened to actually be along. He was 15 at the time when we found the Inoko. But you just dro- you drive back and forth, you set a grid, and hope that uh, you drive over something other than flat bottom. So you're you're not doing this without some knowledge of the wreck itself, right? You would you would seen records. You knew roughly where this ship went down, or at least where people thought it went down. This you were looking for this particular ship at, uh, on that when you found it, right? Yes, we were looking specifically for the Anoko because it was the first iron-hulled uh, bulk freighter on the Great Lakes. Interesting. So when did that go down? Well, you're really testing my memory here. But I'm pretty confident it was 1915. And, yes, 1915. And, and how how big was this ship? About uh, 287 
feet long. And do they know why it went down? Yeah, well, there's actually a number of pictures of it as it's sinking. Interesting. And that was one of the clues. We went out there with a lot of uh, with photographic gear and took pictures from here and there all over and ultimately got the land points oh, okay. on the picture uh, to, to line up to the So who, who was taking, was there another ship nearby that was taking pictures? Yes, the crew was saved uh, by uh, an oil tanker called the Renown. Uh, they saw the Inoko sinking out there. It wasn't in a storm. Uh, the Inoko just lost a, a hull plate under the engine and... Uh, I should mention that one of the key ingredients to shipwreck hunting is knowing your location when you're offshore. Uh, and Loran had come in. It was really tough when I threw away my Loran that I'd paid $800 for because GPS is so much better right loran well and they've shut down and what was what was loran uh loran stood for long range aid to navigation but it would give you your position that was within generally about 100 feet okay so you had a dial that gave your coordinates it actually didn't TDs are what they're called. Uh, right. But there was a program to convert TDs, time delays, to your GP, uh, to your geographic coordinates. Sure. So it would tell you within 100 feet where you were as opposed to GPS now. It can tell you within feet uh, or, or less where you are. Yes. When, once Bill Clinton turned off the dithering system that intentionally messed up the GPS signal. You know, GPS was only good within 300 feet, so we continued to use Loran a little bit beyond when GPS was available, uh, just because it was better until the dithering got turned off. And the dithering, was that was that to obscure the GPS signals so that only the military could really have access to it? E- yes, they only okay. wanted accuracy down to within feet, uh, like GPS is right. available to the military. Yeah, yep. So you're there with Loran, so you kind of know your location with 100 feet, and then you've got your fish finder, whatever, searching for the shipwreck that you think is down there, and somehow you saw something that, told you there was a wreck down there yeah right. you get a good vertical signal and i do remember b- bringing it to work the next day and showing one of the ladies i worked with right. that said we found our wreck uh yesterday well how do you know you found it well look at this so she looks at the paper printout and i don't see any shipwreck here <laughs> yeah. but you know to the trained eye right. or the eye right. who is uh, accustomed to but you didn't uh at that point you didn't have uh cameras that could go down how deep was it uh, 220 feet 220 feet so kind of at the very upper range of where you'd feel comfortable diving well we'd been doing a lot of diving in that depth range over in whitefish bay in in between those years in between the early okay. 80s and the uh late 80s so what's the deepest you've ever been? Well, uh, that's <laughs> a little bit hard to say. We went on one wreck called the Superior City over in uh, Whitefish Bay, except uh, we had, the depth gauges we had seemed to never show. No matter how deep we went, we dove on a lot of wrecks that we thought were not as deep as they said they were, or in some cases this one was deeper. But I think that one they say is 270 to the bottom. We stuck to deck level, so we would have been in the 230, 240 range. Okay, so you've been that. So did you wind up diving this uh, Okora? Is that how you pronounce it? Okora? Onoko? Onoko, rather, sorry. Onoko? Oh, yeah, we made uh, quite a few dives on the Anoko. Unfortunately, it wasn't as good as wreck as we hoped for. During the times we were out there, and we actually got annoyed by the good weather we had 
that year. Uh, Craig and I usually had our vacation time for the year all used up by middle of July. So then we started going out every weekend and it was getting annoying. We actually made a promise to ourselves that we weren't going to stop looking for the Anoko till we found it. But once we found it, we were sure as hell never going to look for another <laughs> shipwreck again. <laughs> Uh, which uh, lasted till we actually found it, and right. then we quickly got on to what the next one was. All right, and so and then and, and so what was the next one? I know we're coming up now because we're now at what 1988. 1988. All right, and then and you had your incident pretty soon. 1989. After that. Okay, and 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 what were you doing there, and what happened? Uh, Craig and I had made a dive trip out to Newfoundland to dive World War II oh. wrecks that were sunk by German U-boats. I came home from that vacation and I looked at the work schedule saw I had a week's vacation left and there wasn't anything preventing me from taking another week after our two-week trip out to Newfoundland so uh, Craig wasn't able to make it but I found a gentleman from the Twin Cities uh, keep in touch with him periodically Scott Olson so Scott and I went to Whitefish Bay had a great trip till the last day and it was kind of weird because I generally I couldn't wait to get in the water I just you know I couldn't wait to get in the water and it was going to be the last day of the trip and we were going to be diving a deep wreck called the John B. Cowell and and this is in Whitefish Bay and where where exactly is that for people who might not know where Whitefish Fish Bay is. Uh, Whitefish Bay is the exact opposite end of Duluth. It's in Lake Superior, the, right? But the far eastern end of Lake Superior. Okay. Okay. Is it in Canada then, or is it Canadian waters, or is, well, it's half and it, half. Okay. Like the Gordon Lightfoot, the searchers sure. all say she'd have made Whitefish Bay if they right, put 15 right. more miles behind her. So the Cowell is only three miles off Whitefish Point. Okay. So we were diving there, but I, like I said, I was I, I just had this weird feeling. Oh, Jesus! You know, I got to go to work. It's a 450 mile trip home. We got to get all the stuff backed up. And wow, I just as soon skip it. But we went out and, and made the dive and at that time I mean it was it was really my fault in that I had double tanks on with two separate regulators and many times I had drained I would drain one of the tanks and then just switch to the full tank no big no big deal I thought it was preferable to, to having the tanks connected so because if you had a free flow a regulator free flow when the water's really cold it's not uncommon that one of the regulators or that it'll start spitting out air right. when you don't want it to but it was time to uh head back up and what, what depth were you at oh uh, that, that one's point? about 220 to 220. the bottom okay also okay so, so you... 220 dive and since it was the last dive of the trip we made it a long one so we made it a 25 minute or uh so to get to the surface properly because your body under pressure takes in a lot of nitrogen right uh in a liquid form in your body so so would, about how long would it normally would you need to take how slowly would you need to go up it, it would generally be about an hour and a half to surface yeah that's amazing. you'd have to make stops at 30 feet 20 feet and 10 feet on the way up and that's what we had been doing all all week on the various wrecks we were diving and having watched the old sea hunt someone was always trying to grab mike nelson's regulator right yeah i remember that right that's always i remember bullets going underwater and i remember all these fights where someone tried to grab the regulator that that was a common theme in in many of those episodes and i'd always told myself i was never going to do that 
I was never going to do that. I was never going to do that under any circumstance. And anyway, on the way up, we had just barely left the bottom. Uh, and I realized, oops, that one tank is out of air. So I went to switch to my other tank full right. of air and i could not locate the other regulator oh, now no. in hindsight you know they say hindsight's 2020 i should have had it strapped under my chin so it was just a matter of lifting it into place but right. i was fishing around trying to find it oh boy i wasn't able to find it oh no scott was right behind me and he had a spare secondary regulator but earlier in the trip he'd had trouble with that regulator free flowing so uh it wasn't as dependable as it would have could have should have been but anyway i wasn't thinking that i just needed some air so i went to his backup regulator not the one in his mouth right but another one but uh, but with your tank your your full tank no 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 we weren't doing any switching he ha- had it generally you have two regulators on your tank on each tank right and i kept mine separately he had his combined so uh had the regulator worked as i was expecting it we'd have been okay but when i got that when i inhaled i just, all i got was water i just inhaled oh, water no. and uh oh boy and now that, you're in real trouble yeah, and you're I, 200 feet below the surface yeah and i'm not ashamed to say i guess i panicked I mean, uh, what are you going to do? I thought my chances of surviving the bends was better than drowning. Oh, my goodness. So I went to blew to the surface or went to the surface as fast as I could to get air. And you knew and, you knew that you were going to get the bends. Well, I, I suspect. I mean, yeah, yeah I, w- I wasn't thinking that. I just I needed air. Right. air yep. And I wasn't going to rip the regulator out of Scott's mouth right in, in hindsight i probably sh- you know it probably been shared, better you could have shared a tank kind of made your way up that yes but again i wasn't thinking right. you know in a calm uh manner because right. i in, inhaled water right when right. i i mean it, it wasn't just a matter of yeah and that that can put you in shock right there because it's cold water you're inhaling yeah and if you hold you know if you take a breath it's no problem holding it for a little while but i'd blown it out Right. In right. preparation to inhale. But anyway, Scott was a, a hero beyond all uh, expectations. Now, again, it was, it was just him and I out there. We were both in the water. Our boat was sitting on the surface without anyone in it. Uh, so I hit the surface, you know, and I came up in probably took probably a minute. Wow. Wow. And, and it normally would take an hour. An hour and a half. Hour and a half. Wow. Yeah. And then Scott was a couple, he took about two to three minutes to get up. So, so I was. So isn't he going to get the bends too? Well, he did. We, oh, man. Holy cow. So, but, uh, so I was at the surface and I was just, holy sh- shoot, I should probably try to go back down and see if I can uh, get back down and get back under pressure again. But I started getting symptoms about the time scott hit the surface or made the surface uh, i was getting symptoms my feet and legs were were turning completely numb you know from the bubbles in the spinal cord holy cow but scott managed to get me in the boat pretty much by himself i mean i was able to even though he's got the bends too well he didn't get hit with the symptoms that extra couple minutes for him to come up and he was breathing in and out in and out as he was coming up so he was releasing some of the nitrogen so he didn't get the symptoms uh until later but i wasn't good for much i was still conscious at that time 
but I was kind of able to wiggle over to the boat using my arms, and uh, and uh, Scott was able to somehow pull me into the boat and start heading back to the boat landing. Wow. Back in Whitefish Point. And then uh, obviously went to the hospital right away. And- uh, they, the, the local uh, ambulance took me to Sault Ste. Marie, and then they a flight for life plane flew up from Milwaukee, and I remember... I was kind of in and out of consciousness uh, during that time, and that, and I'd never flown anywhere before, so I remember waking up and thinking, damn it, the first time I've ever been in an airplane, and I can't even look out the window, you know. <laughs> but uh, they took us to uh, Milwaukee, where they, they put us in the, the decompression chamber. They had the big walk-in chambers there, and uh, a doctor... Robert Goldman, uh, you know, notified my wife that uh, what had happened. Right. And uh, if they wanted to see me alive, they better get down there. Holy cow. And then they later said, you know, well, it looks like he might live, but he'll probably be a vegetable you know i mean he, he wow the rest of his life and then i said well it's amazing uh we talked to him seems like he knows <laughs> no <laughs> holy cow so how long were you in the hospital i was in the hospital in milwaukee five weeks wow scott was in about three weeks because then wow. his symptoms got but they never you know were the degree he was able to you know walk, walk out of there yeah I, I was i was in the hospital five weeks and then five weeks later after getting home I was back to work. Back to your day job. And also, you didn't give up wreck hunting either. Now, maybe diving for wrecks, but you didn't give up wreck hunting. No, no, no. no we did not give up. No, didn't give up wreck hunting. I did. I have not been diving since uh, that August day in 1989. It, you know, people have asked me about it, and I just said it would take a, like an army of assistants <laughs> to potentially get me, help me get in and out of the right. water and, and all that. So that that's when I uh, started focusing on the uh, the shipwreck hunting. All right. Well, Jerry, uh, this has been fascinating. Unfortunately, I'm getting the signal that we're just about out of time. So uh, very briefly, I want you to talk a little bit about diving in, in the Silver Island mine i know uh you mentioned that what what what's that about well in the 1860s they discovered a vein of galena with silver ore in it on a little rock on the uh, uh off thunder bay uh, off uh, off the sleeping giant so on it's the a, lakeside it's a silver mine and it was just on a rock so they actually created an artificial island oh interesting in order to mine that mine shaft so in the, starting in the late 1860s and up through about 1873, uh, they sunk, sank two shafts, and one of them goes 1,250 feet Holy cow. deep. And there are some restrictions diving it, depending on who owns it. I mean, it's, an, it's abandoned now. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's completely abandoned. But the mine shaft is 1,250 feet deep, and if anybody gets to the bottom of that, I lost a dive knife that fell out. <laughs> so if they get down to the bottom of that, it's my so knife. So what's, what, what's cool about diving? in the the mine shaft well it's the water is is crystal clear uh you're down there uh the the shaft i would estimate is about 20 feet by 12 feet okay the the main shaft right the one is partially filled in but uh, when you're down there 80 feet and looking up toward the surface you can see that little tunnel of light right and then that you feel like you're in some kind of tunnel between heaven and hell yeah Uh, it's gotta be a little claustrophobic no a little 
bit. I, I know uh, one one guy who went up and uh, made, you know, there's side shafts too. Right. As you go down, you can, there's an occasional shaft that goes off to the side. And I know mine diving like that isn't my, wasn't my specialty. Right. So we went maybe 10, 15 feet into a side shaft. Some right. people I know have gone deeper into the side shafts. That's probably not something you'll find me doing. Um, so are there are there wrecks out there that you know about that you're still searching for? Yeah, well, we uh, just uh, this past September, we knocked one off the list that had we'd been looking for for quite some time called the Henry Steinbrenner. Oh, yes. I, I, I read about that. And that was uh, Henry Steinbrenner. Was that the dad of George Steinbrenner or the... I think the grandfather. grandfather. I think he was the yeah. grandfather okay. Of, okay. of George, the owner yeah. of the New York Yankee. But we knocked that one off the list. Yeah, I've seen some stuff and, and uh, some articles on that one. Do you have any others or, or, is, or is that it? You got, you, 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 uh, you've crossed off your whole bucket list. Well, the, there's two. Uh, I I don't think I think the one I'm just about ready to throw in the towel. Uh, that's the U-6 size six. Uh, the very first German U-boat sunk by U.S. forces in World War II was sunk off of Cape Race, Newfoundland, in 1942. We made three trips out there to search for that, uh, and I, I, th- I think we probably won't get back out there to do that one. But the Sunbeam, uh, that's one that I'm Craig and I in particular have been looking for. It's a wood passenger paddle wheeler. Oh, a side wheeler. Yep. Oh. Oh, nice. Went down in 1863, and there was one sole survivor, 30 hours drifting on a chunk of wood. But uh, finding that one would be neat. And now that Ken Merriman, uh, he's that other partner right, I mentioned, right. a lot of the ships we, I found uh, alongside him or alongside Craig, or some are Craig right. and Ken and I, and Randy Beebe, there, there's a, a host of host of ones. But uh, now that he's back, he went on a five-year tour of the lower lakes. Oh, interesting. And I don't like those damn zebra mussels, so I've been kind of reluctant. Right. We did find about half a dozen wrecks in the lower lakes. They're a lot easier to find down there because there's so th- many of them. Right, right. And they're not, well, they're they're not quite as deep as Lake Superior, right? The the other lakes? Yeah, well, we found the Pier Marquette 18. Uh, that's 460 so that's, feet that's deep. That's plenty deep, so plenty it, deep. It, it, it's it's too deep for uh, us old guys to dive. Right. Although, you know, now they've introduced mixed gas diving, so they mix helium in with the the oxygen and nitrogen so dives can be made uh that deep now wow all right well that's that's crazy stuff well listen um this has been fascinating uh we thank you so much for being our guest i feel like we could do a 24-hour podcast with you and we would just scratch the surface of uh, of your life and these wreck hunts but maybe we can have you on here again we do like to uh, ask everyone when uh when you're not doing wreck hunting and stuff and i, I think you you live in cloquet now e- yes, yes. Scanlon actually but oh, i say Scanlon, okay yeah. so what what do you like to do when you're not uh, when you're not wreck hunting well i'm a huge milwaukee brewers fan <laughs> sure uh no so now that's over uh for the year right I, but i i watch uh, i watch a fair amount of sports and then designing equipment uh, for the to use the next season. Uh, Ken, uh, 
Well, I'm 70 plus, I think Ken's 75, so he's been complaining lately about how heavy some of the gear I bring along with, like the the underwater camera and the sonar. So I finally took that to heart, so I'm designing some new uh, style lights where we should be able to drop 25 pounds of weight off the uh, off the camera system. Nice. Well, it, it does not sound like you're uh, retiring from wreck hunting anytime soon, so we hope to uh, hear about more wrecks that you discover yeah well it's definitely year by year at at this point well again jerry thank you so much for joining us and uh it's just been a real pleasure thank you okay well thanks for having me and hopefully if you fell asleep you had a good sleep (laughs) i don't think anyone fell asleep i sure didn't thanks jerry thanks for listening to another episode of for the love of duluth Season 1, 2, and 3 are available now wherever you get your podcasts. All you have to do is search for For the Love of Duluth. Have a minute to spare? Leave a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We hope you are loving Season 4 so far. We'll see you next time for another brand new episode of For the Love of Duluth.